good to uh, sing that song, huh? I like that. It's a fitting uh, song to sing before we turn in our Bibles to uh, Psalm 23. And as you're turning there, I just want to say thank you to all of you who were so kind and thoughtful uh, on Monday to wish me happy birthday. Um, my phone was exploding all day uh, with texts and emails and phone calls and uh, appreciate that. It was very, very thoughtful, very kind. Um, someone even brought over a birthday cake that uh, when they handed it to me, I couldn't believe how heavy it was. Uh, I was like, what in the world is in this cake? And uh, anyway, I nicknamed the cake Chocolate Coma <laughs> because I ate one piece and I was just like, whoa, I need to sit down. I need to lay down. I need to take a nap. I need to do something. But uh, it was amazing. So I'm trying to give it away because... It's just too much for me to handle. So if anyone wants a piece of chocolate cake, see me afterwards and we'll hook you up. My wife's like, amen. Get that away from my husband. It's not good for him. So anyway, well, let's read Psalm 23 again as we begin tonight. David recorded here, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then the verse for this evening's sermon, verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, we come to you once again just to pause and to acknowledge you as the ultimate author of this song. Psalm 23, you inspired David, your servant, the man after God's own heart, to, to write this out for us. And then you chose to preserve it here in your word for us, to study, to meditate on to apply to our lives. And so I pray, Lord, tonight your spirit would illuminate us and help us understand the original meaning of these words and these phrases. And then, Lord, that the spirit would make application of them to our lives today. Lord, that we might go out of here with greater um, love for our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, the world is a dangerous place especially for those of us who are followers of Christ. Not only do we have to live with the threat of nuclear war and natural disasters and deadly diseases like everyone else on this planet, but as Christians, what makes the earth such a hostile environment for us is that we're living in enemy territory. The Bible says that we're aliens and strangers in this world, who must abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against our souls. Jesus himself promised that his followers would be hated and persecuted by everyone else in the world. The Apostle Paul said that the world is under the control of our ruthless adversary, Satan. John said in 1 John 5.19 that the world lies in the lap of the evil one. According to Jesus, Satan's goal is to destroy us John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and what? And destroy. 
Peter, one of Christ's followers, likened Satan to a ferocious lion who's always prowling around seeking someone to devour. And uh, today, I think it's typical in some circles within the church to really downplay Satan and uh, to not give him uh, the credit, I guess, or the attention or the respect, the healthy fear that he deserves while he's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. While he's not omnipresent, he's not everywhere, and he's not omnipotent, he's not all-powerful, right? He still exists, and he's a formidable foe, a defeated foe, but a formidable foe nevertheless. Philip Keller, in his book, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm, says this, it's rather fashionable in some contemporary Christian circles to discredit Satan. There's a tendency to try and write him off or laugh him off as though he were just a joke. Some deny that such a being as Satan even exists, yet we see evidence of his merciless attacks and carnage in a society where men and women fall prey to his cunning tactics almost every day. We see lives torn and marred and seared by his assaults, though we may never see him personally. And then Keller goes on to speak from his own experience as a shepherd. He says, it reminds me of my encounters with cougars. On several occasions, these cunning creatures came in among my sheep at night, working terrible havoc in the flock. Some ewes were killed outright, their blood drained and livers eaten. Others were torn open and badly clawed. In these cases, the great cat seemed to chase and play with them in their panic like a house cat would chase a mouse. Some had huge patches of wool torn from their fleeces in their frightened stampede. Some had stumbled and broken bones or rushed over rough ground, injuring legs and bodies. Yet, despite the damage, despite the dead sheep, despite the injuries and fear instilled in the flock, I never once actually saw a cougar on my range. So cunning and so skillful skillful were their raids, they defied description. I think that's a very fitting description of Satan, that while we can't see him, uh, he does exist, and he has minions uh, not the funny minions like Despicable Me too, right? Not those kind of minions, but he has masses of followers of, of demons who followed him in his rebellion against the Lord and was cast out of heaven. Uh, he, they were cast out of heaven along with him, and they populate the earth. And so we are living in enemy territory with very uh, formidable foes, But God's Word also tells us that despite all the dangers that we face as believers in this world, we have nothing to fear because greater is He that is in us than He that is in the world, right? 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. That was one of my favorite verses when I was a child. Uh, In fact, I memorized a little song. Uh, Greater is He that is in me. Greater is He that is in me. You guys ever remember the song? Greater is He that is in me than He... So... Listen, I was freaked out by the dark. When I was a little kid, man, I was scared of the dark. And we had a two-story, old colonial home, two-story, and, and everything went kind of like creaked in the middle of the night. And so I remember whenever my mom and dad probably don't know this because I never told them this because I was you know, too prideful to admit I was afraid of the dark. But whenever I had to go upstairs, like my mom would say, hey, go upstairs and, into your room to get this or go upstairs in your room and get ready for bed. 
and I was the only one upstairs. I remember I'd have to go up this little flight of stairs up to the second story, and it was always dark up there. And uh, I, would, I would sing this little song as I went up the stairs. Greater is he that is in me. Greater is he that is in me. And I'd be quoting this verse, you know, because I was scared of what might be up. You know, the boogeyman lived up in my, uh, up upstairs in my house, I guess. But that, 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 I'll never forget that verse because it's true. Greater is he that is in us, Jesus Christ, than he that is in the world. And while that might be a silly little story, it, 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 it plays itself out in adult life as well for things that we're scared of uh, that are more than the dark, right? Uh, you may not be scared of the dark anymore as adults, but you're scared of other things, right? And that verse still applies. Well, tonight, as we continue our study in Psalm 23, we're going to see how God provides safe haven amid a hostile world. And while Satan threatens to steal and to kill and destroy, the great shepherd of our soul ensures that his followers experience the abundant life that he came to earth to provide for us through his sinless life and his sacrificial death. Now, I don't know if you've noticed when we were reading this, or you may have been noticing it over the last several weeks as we read this, um, it seems like um, there's some sort of transition that takes place between between verse 4 and verse 5. In fact, a number of commentators suggest that David switched metaphors here in these last two verses of Psalm 23. They suggest that in verses 1 through 4, David likened his relationship uh, with God to that of a, what, shepherd and sheep. We've been studying about that. And then they suggest that now in verses 5 and 6, he likened his relationship with God to that of a host and his guest. And from just a, a cursory reading... It does appear that the scene changes here from the outdoors to the indoors, from a field setting with with, uh, streams and paths and valleys to a house setting with tables and oils and cups. And so some say that this psalm is, is, is not just about the Lord being our shepherd, but also the Lord being our host. Now, I must admit, that doesn't sound as sentimental, right? as the Lord is my shepherd, right? You don't hear people saying, the Lord is my host. Uh, We're not used to thinking of Psalm 23 in that context. And so what they suggest is that just like a gracious, generous host lavishly cares for his guests every need, so the Lord lavishly provides for our every need. And while that may be true, and we can ask David when we get to heaven what he was thinking here if he switched metaphors, right? Remember, somebody write that down to ask David when you get there, right? But until then, I think there's some good reasons to believe that David kept right on trucking here, and he maintained the shepherd-sheep analogy throughout the entire psalm. And probably the biggest reason is, I don't know if you've noticed this as we've gone through this uh, psalm, as we studied it verse by verse, that this psalm is not stationary, but it's migratory, It's not stationary, it's migratory. In other words, the flow of this psalm follows the seasonal movements of a shepherd with a sheep. And so David was recounting basically a year in the life of a sheep. In early spring, the shepherd would care for his sheep among green pastures and quiet streams near his homestead. And then as the summer heat began to scorch 
the grass there and, and, and the grass was grazed over, the shepherd would move the, the sheep to higher ground through the valleys so they would be able to graze in the mountain meadows. And we've seen this seasonal migration in verses 1 through 4, right, that we, we begin with uh, establishing the fact that the Lord is our shepherd, I shall not want. So, so we're introduced to the shepherd. And then he makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside quiet waters. And again, just he's, he's uh, leading us there uh, in, in, in the, the kind of the lowlands, if you will. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And we said that last week that during the, the summer season, when the snow finally melts on the mountaintops, a shepherd will often lead his flock to those mountaintops where there's prime grazing available. And however, the best route to get to those mountain meadows or those alpine meadows is oftentimes through treacherous ravines and dangerous gulches, which posed uh, many threats to sheep. And it was during these precarious journeys, these, these valleys of of darkness is really of deep darkness that that's the literal translation not necessarily death but deep darkness it's through it was during these times when the sheep would walk most closely with the shepherd they didn't want to drift too far away because it was kind of scary going through those those valleys and this was a time when the shepherd would have to provide the closest care to for for his sheep and so we saw the picture here uh, ch- changing in verse 4 to a, to a much greater intimacy between the shepherd and the sheep. And we saw that in the change of pronouns, right? Uh, David went from talking about he, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down. He, 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 he. Now it's uh, you. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod, your staff, they comfort me. And so David went from talking about the shepherd to talking to the shepherd. And he continues that in this next verse. Notice the intimacy here. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. And so again, we have this intimate relationship going on now. After having gone through the valley, uh, now they're up on the mountaintop, and they've established this intimate relationship having gone through the difficult paths, the difficult times, right? Just like you, as you've gone through difficult times, you've probably grown closer to the Lord through difficult times in your life than easy times in your life, right? And so he says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And so before a shepherd would bring his sheep to the high places, he would go ahead of them and prepare the fields, he would carefully inspect the field and, and clear the grazing area of poisonous plants. He'd look for signs of dangerous predators like wolves and, and coyotes and cougars and bears. And he would hunt them down or he, he would trap them and remove them to make sure his sheep would be safe when they got to the highlands. And these flat meadows in the mountaintops are referred to as tablelands. Probably the classic example uh, is uh, in, in Cape Town, South Africa, there's actually a mountain called Table Mountain. If you've ever been there, it's a beautiful setting right there on the coast, uh, on the tip of, of Africa, but it's called Table Mountain. 
Um, again, Philip Keller suggests this. He says, in some of the finest sheep country of the world, especially in the western United States and southern Europe, the high plateaus of the sheep ranges are also referred to as mesas. You've heard of that phrase, right? Spanish. So you kids are taking Spanish in school. You know what a mesa means, right? It's the word for what? Table. And so the imagery here that David used doesn't necessarily have to represent this well-set banquet table. Like you're not walking into this house and there's this table, right? This banquet table. Not necessarily. He could be very easily referring, right, to, uh, to this field. And yet, this is the analogy... Um, or this, this is a great analogy, even though we say, let's, let's, let's continue to view this from a shepherding perspective. Uh, it is a great analogy to think about how the Lord treats us like his honored guest and provides this lavish spread for us, right? You think about walking into somebody's home that has the gift of hospitality, right? Hospitality on steroids, and they've, 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 they've thought of everything, right? And you feel like a king or a queen when you, when you walk in. Derek Kidner even suggested here that that this probably anticipated a victory celebration where the enemies are present as captives or an accession feast with defeated rivals as reluctant guests. Again, so if you take the interpretation that it's talking about a home, a banqueting table in a, in a home, it's maybe a victory dinner. And all your enemies have to sit around and watch you rejoice, Right? And enjoy the spoils of your, of your winning. But again, I think it makes more sense to understand this phrase as the Lord preparing a field for his flock where they can feast to their heart's content in complete peace and security even though they're in a hostile environment. In other words, for us, God provides his infinite resources in the worst situations. Philip Keller applies this uh, to our lives as Christians. He shows the parallel. He says in the Christian life is that Christ, our great shepherd, has himself already gone before us in every situation, in every extremity that we might encounter. We are told emphatically that he was tempted at all points like we are. We know he entered fully and completely and very intimately into the life of men upon our planet. He has known our sufferings, experienced our sorrows, and endured our struggles in this life. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Because of this, he understands us. He has totally identified himself with humanity. He has, therefore, a care and compassion for us beyond our ability to grasp. No wonder he makes every possible provision to ensure that when we have to cope with Satan, sin or self, the contest will not be one-sided. Rather, we can be sure he has been in that situation before, he is in it now again with us, and because of this, the prospects of our preservation are excellent. It is this attitude of rest in him, of confidence in his care, of, re- of relaxation, as we re- realize his presence in the picture that can make the Christian life one of calm and quiet confidence. The Christian walk can thus become a mountaintop experience, a tableland trip, simply because we are in the care and control of Christ, who has been over all this territory before us and prepared the table for us in plain view of our enemies who would demoralize and destroy us if they could. And so here we have a great picture of our intercessor, Jesus Christ, right? Right? 
He was, um, he was our intercessor. He was the one that went before us, and now he's our advocate in heaven. He's a high priest who can relate, right? Hebrews chapter 4 talks about that, that he's been exposed to, 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 to all these things. Let me read that for you. Hebrews chapter 4 is an important verse if you are not familiar with it. You want to write this verse down. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted at all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore... Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's already been here. He's already done that, right? He's already passed through this hostile uh, environment, this hostile territory, so that he could provide a safe haven for us, his followers, as we walk through this wicked world. And so again, the table here, when it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, the table pictures all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ, that he purchased for us with his precious blood. Paul talked about these blessings in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so even though we are surrounded by enemies on all sides here on earth, we enjoy these blessings in peace and security. And again, that doesn't mean that all of our troubles, all of our problems, all of our pains uh, are removed completely, right? But we need to be reminded that every day God is setting a table for us in the midst of these things. He's providing for us. Notice the next phrase. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. And again, some scholars will continue the analogy of the, the, the host and the guest and, and say that this was referring to what every gracious host would do when a, when a guest would enter their home to refresh them from their travels. You remember in, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus uh, rebuked Simon the Pharisee for failing to pour oil on his head, right? He said, he said uh, hey, this woman came in and she poured oil on my feet and wiped it with, my, with her hair and you didn't even anoint my head with oil. He had overlooked a, a common uh, practice of hospitality, which revealed his heart towards Christ, right? He really didn't care about Christ. He was trying to catch Christ in some, some kind of uh, trap. But again, if David still had in mind a shepherd caring for his sheep, the anointing of the head with oil here has a, has a totally different meaning. Um, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you know that oil in the Bible was used for a number of things. It was used to refresh guests. We just talked about that. It was also used to anoint kings and priests for service, but it was also used to soothe and to heal wounds. Probably a good example would be... Um, the story of uh, the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, right? And uh, how he came along and he put oil on the wounds of, of that man that was left for dead. Well, from a shepherd's perspective, a shepherd would put oil on the scratches and the bruises and the wounds of his sheep. 
So whenever they would, uh, when the sheep would come back into the pen at night, they would examine them as they would come through the gateway. And if there was any scratches or bruises or wounds or cuts, uh, they would, the shepherd would put oil on that to, to soothe it and to heal it, help it heal. But they would also use oil as a bug repellent. This is interesting. If, if you've ever cared for livestock, you know the serious problem that insects pose particularly during the summertime. Uh, countless parasites proliferate at this time of year, and they drive sheep literally crazy. And again, Philip Keller uh, provides some very interesting insight, uh, kind of a color commentary on this whole idea of thou anointest my head with oil. Listen to what he writes about his experience with sheep. He said, sheep are especially troubled by the nose fly or nasal fly, as it sometimes is called, these little flies buzz about the sheep's head, attempting to deposit their eggs on the damp mucous membranes of the sheep's nose. If they're successful, the eggs will hatch in a few days to form small, slender, worm-like larvae. Sorry for the weak at heart here. But uh, they work their way up the nasal passages into the sheep's head. They burrow into the flesh, and there set up an intense irritation accompanied by severe inflammation. For relief from this agonizing annoyance, sheep will deliberately beat their heads against trees, rocks, posts, or brush. They'll rub them in the soil and thrash around against woody growth. In extreme cases of intense infestation, a sheep may even kill itself in a frenzied endeavor to gain respite from the aggravation. Often, advanced stages of infection from these flies will lead to blindness. Because of all this, when the nose flies hover around the flock, some of the sheep become frantic with fear and panic in their attempt to escape their tormentors. They will stamp their feet erratically and race from place to place in the pasture, trying desperately to elude the flies. Some may run so much they will drop from sheer exhaustion. Others may toss their heads up and down for hours. They will hide in any bush or woodland that offers shelter. On some occasions, they may refuse to graze in the open at all. All this excitement and distraction has a devastating effect on the entire flock. Ewes and lambs rapidly lose condition and begin to drop in weight. The ewes will go off milking and their lambs will stop growing uh, gainfully. Some sheep will be injured in their headlong rushes of panic. Others may be blinded and some even killed outright. Only the strictest attention to the behavior of the sheep by the shepherd can forestall the difficulties of the fly time. At the very first sign of flies among the flock, he will apply an antidote to their heads. He said, I always preferred to use a homemade remedy composed of linseed oil, sulfur, and tar, which was smeared over the sheep's nose and head as a protection against nose flies. He says, what an incredible transformation this would make among the sheep. Once the oil had been applied to the sheep's head, there was an immediate change in the behavior. Gone was the aggravation, gone the frenzy, gone the irritability and the restlessness. Instead, the sheep would start to feed feed quietly again, then soon lie down in peaceful contentment. Pretty interesting, huh? But then he goes and he makes the application to us. He said, this to me is the exact picture of irritations in our lives. So often, small, petty annoyances ruin our repose. Just as with the sheep, there must be continuous and renewed application of oil to forestall the flies in my life. There must be a continuous anointing of God's gracious spirit to counteract the ever-present aggravations of personality conflicts. He talks about how 
we as sheep oftentimes butt heads, right, in the church. And uh, he even said that uh, on occasion he would put oil on the sheep, the, the male sheep's horns, because during mating season they would smash heads together, right, to, to win their mate. Um, and, and, uh, and so they would sometimes kill each other. And so he rubbed oil on their, on their horns so when they would smash together, they would slip off each other and when they, they would feel like doofuses, right? Because they, they couldn't connect. They just keep slipping, but it would save their lives. And so he says, sometimes we need to have this, the, the Spirit of God, right? We need to have the Spirit of God to, to be lubricating our life, if you will, uh, so that we're demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, uh, faithfulness, self-control, um, so that we don't crash heads with one another. He says the Holy Spirit alone can give to us the attitudes of Christ. He alone makes it possible, or possible for us to react to aggravations and annoyances with quietness and calm. When people or circumstances or events beyond our control tend to bug us, it is possible to be content and serene when these outside forces are counteracted by the presence of God's Spirit. It is this daily anointing of God's gracious spirit upon our minds, which produces in our lives such personality traits as joy, contentment, patience, gentleness, and peace. What a contrast this is to the tempers, frustration, and irritableness which mars the daily conduct of so many of God's children. We know the scripture talks about uh, the Holy Spirit uh, anointing us when we get saved. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, this is where he's getting, making that connection between the oil and the spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, it says, Now God who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And so again, just a reminder that every believer, every Christian, is anointed with the Holy Spirit the moment they receive Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And so we need not just that initial anointing, right, that we receive when we get saved, but there needs to be a daily anointing where we, like it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled, right, with the Holy Spirit. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Don't be controlled by your flesh. When, when you're controlled by the flesh, everybody and everything around you bugs you, right? But when you're, when you're, when you're in the Spirit, you're controlled by the Spirit, you respond in, in, with, with, with love and with joy and with peace and with patience and with kindness and with gentleness and with self-control. Back in Psalm 23... Notice this last phrase. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. And so I think the point here is when we think about all the riches that we have in Christ, we should just burst forth with grateful praise. And just, my, my cup runneth over. And this word overflow, my cup overflows, is, is a Hebrew noun that means an abundance. It comes from a, a verb meaning to be satiated, to be soaked, to be saturated. 
Steve Lawson in his commentary on this verse says this, this pictures the abundant supply of divine grace in David's life, which was more than sufficient to strengthen and sustain him in the most dangerous circumstances. God is an infinite source of all that believers need to live victoriously in difficult situations. In other words, in spite of all the problems and challenges and enemies that David faced in his life, and he had many I mean, he lived part of his life as a fugitive, right? Running from, the, from, from crazy man Saul. And so in spite of all the problems and all the challenges, all the enemies that he, that he had to deal with in his life, David was, was drenched with the blessings from heaven. Again, if you want to go with the, the, the guest host analogy here. This would be like when it says my cup overflows. This would be like that attentive waiter. We've all had them at the restaurant, right? Where, where they just, they don't ever let your water glass get empty, right? I mean, they're just constantly showing up and pouring the water and they're not just pouring it, filling it. They're like overflowing it. It's like all over the table, right? They just say, whoosh, whoosh. they come back five minutes, whoosh, whoosh, right? You're like, dude, you're on it tonight. Way to go, man. Good hustle, Right? But it's just it's overflowing. It's they're, they're attentive and they're constantly providing for you. And again, God always provides for us and, and, and not just our bare necessities. You know, bless Baloo, but he, he's, uh, he wasn't a Christian because he wouldn't have been singing about bare necessities, right? He would have been talking about these abundant blessings, right? These abundant blessings. Listen to a couple of verses about God's abundance in the way he blesses us. This is Psalm 36, verse 8. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. I mean, we're not just drinking out of a, out of a glass, and we're not even drinking out of a, a, a water fountain. We're drinking out of a river. Okay, you think about sticking your head down in a river, right? I mean, it's just, it's just going to keep coming. You're not going to wear out that river, right? You can keep drinking and drinking and drinking. And again, John chapter 10, uh, we already quoted uh, this verse once, but this is in the context of, of the parable of the good shepherd. And Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Young people, listen up. Satan is so deceptive that he has got some of you to believe that this verse is the exact opposite, that Jesus came to steal and kill and destroy. In other words, Jesus came to, to steal all your fun, to destroy your life. But he's come that you might have a you might have a good time. See, that's the way Satan twists scripture and gets us to believe things that aren't true. But Jesus said, no, I came, I have come that you may have life, and not just life, but have it abundantly. To have abundant life. Romans chapter 5 verse 17 talks about the abundance of God's grace. Romans chapter 5 verse 17, for it is by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And then a verse that we know well because it's the theme of our building campaign, our above and beyond building campaign, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, 
Now to him who is able to do more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's a great verse, right? That God's able to do far more than you could even uh, ask or even imagine. That's how abundant God's riches and blessings are. Someone wrote a, a hymn years ago that went like this. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. And so when we think about all the, the riches that we have in Christ, again, we should just burst forth and just say, my cup overflows. I mean, that, we should live with that mindset. Our, our, my, my cup overflows. How do you respond when somebody comes up to you and says, hey, how's it going? We always do that. Hey, how's it going? How, how's it going? How are you doing? We're like, okay, fine. I'm good. I'm all right. Some of us get spiritual. We say, better than I deserve, right? I like to use that, better than I deserve, because it's true. But you know what my favorite response is? And... Uh, it's usually colored folk that say this, right? What do they say? How you doing? What do they say? I'm blessed. I am blessed, brother. I'm blessed, right? I love that. That is so biblical. All of us should say that. When somebody asks us, how are you doing? How's it going? I'm blessed. Because it's true, right? It's always true. You are blessed beyond your wildest dreams. Someone wrote this, the psalm is meant to show us the greatness of God and the greatness of our privilege as the people of God. He says this, if you're a Christian, you are the most blessed of all people. Do you believe that? I mean, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, living in this evil, hostile environment, we are the most blessed people on this planet. And that should show you say, how, how would that show? Well, we don't walk around, you know, moping around, sour puss in it, you know, being Eeyores. You know, somebody asks how you doing, I'm okay. No, you're, you're what? Blessed. blessed. You're blessed. That's what you are. That's what I am. I'm blessed. We're blessed. And so, therefore, being the, the most blessed people on the planet, we should also be the most content people on the planet. Keller says it straight up. He says, as the children of God, the sheep in the divine shepherd's care, we should be known as the most contented people on earth. A quiet, restful contentment should be the hallmark of those who call Christ their master. If he is the one who has all knowledge and wisdom and understanding of my affairs and management, if he is able to cope with every situation, good or bad, that I encounter, then surely I should be satisfied with his care. In a wonderful way, my cup or my lot in life is a happy one that overflows with benefits of all sorts. So we should be the most content. Because we're the most blessed, we should be the most content. 
you say, okay, Ken, then what's wrong with me? <laughs> because I am not that content, or I struggle with contentment. Well, let me suggest to you why you struggle with discontent. This is Peter Jeffrey in his little book called Following the Shepherd. Listen to what he says here. He says, the table is a comprehensive term, right? Back to here, he, he prepares the table, right, in the presence of my enemies. He says, a table is a comprehensive term used to denote all manner of provisions which may be needful or desirable. It speaks of the wonder of all that God provides for his people. As it is, God himself who provides this table, the supplies are always abundant. There is no menu here from which to make a selection, He's taken, right, the, the view of the host here. He said, there's no menu here. You can't select the blessings you want. For all that God provides, we need. And if we are in true fellowship with him, what he provides will, will all be a delight to us. It is not for us to pick and choose or to express our likes and dislike, but rather to accept gratefully all that the Lord provides. All we need in this life, we will find at his table. It is full of all manner of blessings. Every type of spiritual provision is prepared for us. No Christian can ever say, I needed grace and there was none available. Nor can any say, I needed wisdom, but the cupboard, the cupboard was bare. Grace, wisdom, strength, and everything else needed for the Christian life are supplied by our shepherd. We bring nothing to this table but a humble sense of our own unworthiness and grateful sense of God's marvelous goodness and kindness. The only thing that we bring with us are a spiritual hunger and an appetite for the things of God. Now listen, this is where we get to the point of why you're not content, why we're not content, okay? Are you bringing to the table a spiritual hunger and an appetite for the things of God? He says, we will only eat at the prepared table if we have an appetite for the things of God. So often Christians spoil their spiritual appetites by eating the scraps and crumbs left over from the devil's provision for the world. If our minds and hearts are filled with the trash of sin, we will never hunger and thirst after righteousness. The table is prepared in the presence of our spiritual enemies, but they do not want us to eat. The devil knows that if our appetite is for the things of the world, we will always be weak and useless Christians. It does not matter what our abilities are if our appetite is wrong. We will be wrong. Um, we will be wrong. So the devil is always feeding us worldly tidbits. He says, what fools we are as Christians to long for the devil's scraps when the Lord prepares a banquet for us. If our appetite for the things of God is right, then rich indeed will be our experience of the blessings of God. I read somewhere else that one of the other reasons why we're discontent, not only because we're feeding on the scraps of the world, but because we aren't content with our cup. And everybody has a different type of cup, a different size cup, right? And uh, we're, we're, our cup, no matter what size cup you've got, no matter what kind of cup you've got, it's overflowing, right? And so here we are with our little cup, and it's just overflowing. And then we look over here, and this guy's got a bigger cup, and it's like overflowing. And we're like, well, how come I didn't get that cup? Well, dude, your cup's overflowing. What's, what's there to be disappointed about that? Right? And so let me give you a practical example. So, right, you got 
your little church that you're pastoring, right? And, and, and so you look at your cup and it's just overflowing. Look at all the blessings that you're enjoying, that you're experiencing at the church that you're, God's called you to shepherd. And then you look over and some guy's got a bigger church. You're like, well, Lord, why didn't you give me that opportunity, right? It, it's easy to right, compare and become discontent instead of realizing, hey, for some reason, this is a size cup that God ordained for me. And I need to be content with that. But guess what? My cup's overflowing. And I don't deserve any of this to begin with. So keep, keep focused on your cup and, and the fact that it's just, just overflowing, right? That's what you need to keep focused on. And stop focusing on everybody else's cup and what the Lord's doing in that person's life and what the person's doing that, what, what, what God's doing in that marriage or that, how God blessed them, right? God's sovereign in all of those selections of when he handed out the cup size, right? And, and the different things that, that God provides for us. Well, the reason why we can drink the cup of God's blessing ultimately is because the great shepherd of our soul, Jesus Christ, drank the cup of God's wrath. The fact that he drank the cup of God's wrath, right, in the garden, he said, take this cup from me. He was talking about drinking the cup of God's wrath to its very dregs. Jesus didn't want to have to experience the wrath of his father, to be separated from his father. But when he died on that cross, that's exactly what he did. And because Jesus drained his cup, our cup can overflow. And all our blessings in this life and the next, all were purchased for us by the good shepherd when he laid down his life for the sheep. And again, Keller just is so good in how he says some of these things. I wanted to read for you what he said about Christ's sacrifice for us that makes all of the blessings in our life possible. He says, here we see the greatest and deepest demonstration of true love the world has ever known. For God looked down upon sorrowing, struggling, sinning humanity and was moved with compassion for the contrary, sheep-like creatures that he had made in spite of the tremendous personal cost it would entail to himself to deliver them from their dilemma. He chose deliberately to descend and live amongst them that he might deliver them. This meant laying aside his splendor, his position, his prerogatives as the perfect and faultless one. He knew he would be exposed to terrible privation, to ridicule, to false accusations, to rumor, gossip, malicious charges that branded him as a glutton, drunkard, friend of sinners, and even an imposter. It entailed losing his reputation. It would involve physical suffering, mental anguish, and spiritual agony. In short, his coming to earth as the Christ, as Jesus of Nazareth, was a straightforward case of utter self-sacrifice that culminated in the cross of Calvary. The laid down life, the poured out blood, were the supreme symbols of total selflessness. This was love, this was God, this was divinity in action, delivering men from their own utter selfishness, their own stupidity, their own suicidal instincts as lost sheep unable to help themselves. He said, in all of this, there is an amazing mystery. 
No man will ever be able to fully fathom its implications. It is bound up inexorably with the concept of God's divine love of self-sacrifice, which is so foreign to most of us who are so self-centered. At best, we can only grasp feebly the incredible concept of a perfect person, a sinless one, being willingly being willing actually to be made sin, that we who are so full of faults, selfish self-assurance, assertion, and, and suspicion might be set free from sin and self to live a new, free, fresh, abundant life of righteousness. Jesus told us himself that he had come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Just as the sheepman is thrilled beyond words to see his sheep thriving on the high, rich summer range, it is one of the highlights of his whole year, so my shepherd is immensely pleased when he sees me flourish on the tablelands of a noble, lofty life that he has made possible for me. Part of the mystery and wonder of Calvary, of God's love to us in Christ, is bound up, too, with the deep desire of his heart to have me live on a higher plane. He longs to see me living above the mundane level of common humanity. He is so pleased when I walk in the ways of holiness, of selflessness, of serene contentment in his care, aware of his presence, and enjoying the intimacy of his companionship. All of that is made possible for us through the death of Jesus Christ. And if you are willing to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you can enter into his fold and you can be blessed beyond your wildest imagination and find a haven in this hostile world. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this promise of haven a place of safe rest in the midst of a wild and crazy uh, world in which we live. Lord, we know not just from your word, what your word says, but also by our own experience that we live in hostile territory. We are, we are traveling sojourners in, 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 in enemy country. We're behind enemy lines. But Lord, thank you that you make provision for us, that we have all the supplies we need, that you provide us peace and rest. Lord, and you... Um, Protect us from the evil one, Lord, and that you just pour out your blessings upon us in in great abundance, that our cup just continually overflows. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone here tonight who is yet to trust Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they're just kind of hanging around, and they have never taken Satan seriously, they've never taken you seriously. Lord, they would realize the, the blessings that they're missing out on by not repenting of their sin and trusting Christ and becoming one of uh, Christ's sheep. And Lord, for the rest of us, I pray that you would help us to be, uh, to, to remember how blessed we are and that that would help us to remain content no matter the circumstances that you ordain for our lives. Lord, that we would uh, recognize that no matter what you've uh, given to us, no matter what you've blessed us with, no matter how great or small, uh, we don't deserve any of it to begin with. And so we would just be simply content with what you choose to bless us with. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.